welcome to the Champs App Podcast, where we help players and parents demystify the world of minor hockey development and recruiting for both girls and boys. On this episode, I talk with Tara Connolly, who is the assistant coach at RPI's women's hockey program. We discuss the USA Hockey Girls Camps at the district, regional, and national level. We also talk about being a goalie and her advice for goalies and their parents. And finally, you can learn about the RPI women's hockey program and their recruiting process. I really enjoyed this conversation with Tara, and I hope you do too. Before we get to our guest, if you enjoyed this episode and want us to keep making more of them, please share it with teammates and friends. You can also subscribe, like, follow, and even better, it would be great if you would leave us a review. Now, let's drop the puck and get to the show. I'm very excited to have on the Champs App podcast, Tara Connolly, who is an assistant coach at RPI. Tara grew up in Simsbury, Connecticut, and went to Gunnery Prep School before attending Bowdoin College, where she was a dual sport athlete and played lacrosse and hockey. After Bowdoin, she was a coaching assistant at Wesleyan College for three years. She was also has been a coach at the USA Hockey Regional and National Girls Camps. And then four years ago, she joined RPI as an assistant coach. Uh, unfortunately, their season was canceled this year, but I'm very happy to have Tara Connolly on the Champs App podcast. Hi, Tara. Hi, Ray. Thanks for having me. Hey, great to have you. Thank you for making the time. Uh, why don't we just kick this off with, um, you know, a little bit of your hockey history. What I didn't mention is that we're a goalie both in lacrosse and in uh, women's ice hockey. So you're our first goalie on the podcast. So very excited for, for that. Um, why don't we, yeah, like I said, kick it up, kick us off with your uh, hockey history. Sure. Well, like you said, I was a goalie in hockey and lacrosse. I think when you have two older brothers, you don't have much of a choice. Uh, that's the only way you're allowed to participate. But um, Is that how it I grew started? up... Uh, I'm sorry, that was, was that much, how you started becoming a goalie? It was because your, your brothers made you play net? Totally. There, there, we have this phenomenal picture when I was a kid where uh, my brothers have baseball gloves out, and I have, like, every piece of protective equipment we could find, and then a baseball glove, too, and I was pretty much, like, their backstop, catcher, goalie, you know, whatever, for street hockey. So, But I, because of them, I grew up skating when I was, like, three or four. Um, I was actually just talking to my mom, and she was saying when we were out on the ponds, because um, my brothers are about five years older, they would kind of tow me along at like three months old in a little sled. So been on the ice since a, since a little kid, which is which is awesome. And started by learning to skate, playing white hockey. And it wasn't until I was probably uh, 11 or 12 years old that I became a goalie more so full-time. Um, and that was just kind of out of necessity. The, the girls team started to need a goalie and um, I wasn't really making the, the might be squads <laughs> as a player. So I kind of Kind of took the hint there and thought maybe I could carve out a role for myself as a goalie and just went on from there. I'll ask you a question uh, about your transition from being a forward or a skater to, to a goalie. The, um, this is going to be my first goalie question. So in the past, I've heard everyone say that the goalie needs to be the best skater on the ice. How good a skater were you at that time when you became a goalie? Yeah, I firmly believe that. And I think we've really gotten away from that in some of the younger goalie development because they've been tossed right into pads right away. Um, I, I was pretty good. That was always one of my strengths was, was skating, um, you know, and, and not necessarily being a phenomenal goalie, but definitely skating. Uh, and it's huge. I mean, you're covering a small six foot area um, of the crease, but you have to be able to get across really quickly, uh, concisely. You have to use your inside edges really well. You got to have power on them. Your stability has to be really strong. And um, so I've always found that the best goalies are, are the best skaters because they can, you know, use the power in their blades really well. And they have that ability to to get around the ice, and it is important. Um, so I, I firmly believe in that, and, and I think uh, goalies who continue to do skating with their teams as well as crease movement, uh, you know, who who jump out and play as players, they get a really good uh, they get really good development, and then they get a really good perspective too on on the game. Okay, and so as a youth player, um, you know, how did you become such a great goalie at that time? Like, what what, what was your key to your development? You know, in your you know, from, from 10 to, to when you went away to prep school? I don't think that I was a great goalie, but, um, you know, what I, what I found was I also had really good competition. So um, I had other goaltenders that uh, I looked up to that we pushed each other and competed against. And then we also had access to, um, at the time, the, the, the amount of goalie coaching that's available now wasn't as big back then. Uh, there were certainly private lessons and things like that. But, um, you know, I don't think that the organizations were as in tune with um, you know, the amount of like goalie coaching and bringing people in for practice and clinics the way they do now, which is, which is phenomenal. Um, but I did have a couple coaches who would just kind of keep me, you know, keep me in check, come shoot on me when we weren't getting that many shots, do simple drills that, um, you know, even though we weren't 
doing phenomenally technical goalie stuff and they weren't super high level goalie coaches, it, it gave me that focus. So I wasn't just sitting back in a net, you know, not getting any work. Um, and they would work on my, you know, crease movement and things like that. So I was really fortunate to have uh, organizations growing up. I played for the New England Coyotes who are now, I think the, the New England Falcons on the Springfield area. And they did a, a great job of doing like monthly goalie clinics and having somebody on the ice to kind of keep tabs on me and help push me. So, um, so I was fortunate to have that. And, and that access really, really helped me so that I wasn't just kind of stagnating uh, when I did become a goalie full time. Gotcha. And, and what was that process of deciding that you wanted to go to prep school um, and, and pursue a dual sport kind of uh, athletic career? Yeah, it was something that I grew up in, in Simsbury, as you said. So I grew up right near Westminster School, and I had always seen, uh, you know, was really familiar with the prep school route. Uh, at the time, that was one of the best places to go uh, prep school. I mean, to, to play hockey and compete, the levels were incredibly high. Uh, they were turning out a lot of, like, Olympic athletes at the time. And it was an area where I also thought, um, because travel hockey was separate and further away, uh, I felt like I was kind of missing out on that balance of, uh, being around my teammates, having, uh, you know, having them be my best friends and kind of my social life and also playing uh, at my public high school and playing public uh, school sports as well. So for me, it was a really great uh, choice to be able to combine all that stuff into one element and be able to live on campus, uh, live with my teammates, play with them and, and be able to get on the ice six days a week. So that was kind of what guided me down that route. And and obviously you played two sports. Uh, what lacrosse and hockey? Correct me if I'm wrong. In New England, you're supposed to play three sports at prep school. <laughs> so what was your third sport that you also played? That's an awesome question. Uh, when I was at public high school, I played volleyball because I decided I did not want to be a goalie in my third sport. That was my rule for myself. Uh, I think as any anybody knows, when you take two sports or one sport very seriously, you want to have some some fun and some perspective uh, in your third sport. So volleyball was so fun. Um, I had a, a really great experience, met some great friends at Simsbury and uh, got some different athleticism and, and work in uh, in terms of coordination in that respect. And then when I went to prep school, I was a, a soccer player and uh, it was it was awesome for my conditioning and again, some coordination and things along those lines. So it was, uh, it was fun. I had a lot of, a really good time in my third sport. All right, and did your height help you with uh, the volleyball? Um, my towering five five stature was uh, really <laughs> helpful as an outside hitter in volleyball. I could barely clear the net. Like it was, it was awesome. That's why it was awesome. I mean, my dad was like, "I can't believe you're a volleyball player." You, yeah, but that, that makes that's, sense. <laughs> and but um, I bet you, you you developed some skills that you were able to apply to to your your primary sports. Is that correct? Absolutely, and that's that's the best part about playing multiple sports is you you learn the different techniques that, that apply across all sports. Like I always felt like that in lacrosse, um, you know, you could play like cat and mouse with somebody when I'm trying to clear a ball, even as a goalie, uh, you know, and that little like look off deception and body language is that applies across all sports. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. And especially in, you know, when I transitioned to soccer, it was, it was neat. I took a lot away from that. Gotcha. Okay. And then how did you decide, uh, you know, where to go to college? What was that process like? Yeah, I, I knew I wanted to keep playing hockey. That was my first love. Um, lacrosse was a, a great addition to it. And uh, I was looking at kind of smaller schools in the New England area. Um, I had a brother who went to Williams College, which is how I got to know the NESCAC a little bit. Um, so I went on a bunch of tours and, uh, you know, went through the whole college process probably a little bit later than, than most players are doing now. And uh, just reached out to a lot of coaches. Like I wasn't pursued. Um, I think the only the school that reached out to me was actually Wesleyan University, where I ended up coaching with uh, Coach Jody McKenna. But uh, yeah, I wasn't really uh, high on people's lists, which I, which I kind of love. Like I like like that underdog mentality. So I had to really advocate for myself and um, you know and, and reach out to coaches and, and do my homework and get up there. So Bowden just it was the right spot. I mean, I loved it as soon as I got up there and visited. You're in coastal Maine. Um, you know, I'm a big uh, history nerd, obviously, and, um, you know, being in that area was, you know, they talked about the Civil War connections and just everything felt right. You know, it was a brand new rink at the time. Um, I was really excited by the coach who was a Canadian Olympian, uh, Stacey Wilson. So it was, uh, you know, the players on the team were fantastic on my visit. Like all those qualities, it just kept checking off boxes uh, and, and everyone I had heard had had an awesome experience there. And four years later, I said the same exact thing. So it was, uh, it was fortunate. Like I look back on it and, uh, Knowing the, the, you know, rigorous college process now from the other side, I'm, I'm just really, really grateful and really fortunate to have had that experience. What was it like both, you know, handling the academics and then playing two varsity sports? <laughs> you know, I think I, I fell into the realm of a lot of athletes where I really appreciated having the structure <laughs> when we were out of season, I think, I, which was only really in the fall for me. 
um, you know, I think I struggled not having like, here's your practice time, here's your time to do work and um, get your sleep and, and nutrition and everything. So uh, I didn't think anything of it. It was actually similar to my high school experience. I thrive when I'm busy. Um, I don't do well with downtime. So, um, you know, it definitely took a lot of time management and there was uh, some wake up calls in my first year or two where, uh, you know, I realized I needed to budget time better or prepare better and plan. So that was definitely a learning and growing experience. But um, I really loved it, you know, and I think I feel the same way now. It's like I always try to pack my schedule and keep things busy and stay on top of things or find a better way to do something. And, and I've really learned a lot of uh, preparation and, you know, list making and note taking and things <laughs> like that from uh, from those years. So it was yeah, it was it was awesome. It was a continuation of kind of what I experienced in high school. Nice. Um... So related to that, uh, on the last podcast, we had Kara Mori, who played, who, who's the coach at Princeton, and she played field hockey and women's ice hockey at Brown. And she told the story of playing both sports in the same day. I'm wondering if uh, you had any experience of playing both sports in the same day that you were uh, you know, transported from one location to the other location to, to come in. And <laughs> Uh, it, you know, the NESCAC was a little more uh, strict. They didn't want us to start one sport until we finished the other. I think my freshman year, because I wasn't playing very much in hockey and they needed a goalie, I think I jumped in early for lacrosse one day. But um, it was really my senior year because uh, in hockey, we won our, our league. We won the NESCAC that year and went to the NCAA tournament. So that was the first year that I actually missed a lacrosse game um, because of that. So after our season ended in the NCAA quarterfinals, I think I had, I think like the next day um, I was on the lacrosse field and then played that weekend, maybe, you know, three, four days later and uh, we beat Amherst and, and it just felt like it, it, it had never stopped. So um, it was, yeah, it's definitely, it was chaotic. It was interesting to flip your brain and um, go from hockey to lacrosse. The, the officials in lacrosse uh, control the game a lot more than obviously the officials in hockey. So mentally that was uh, something I always had to grapple with, you know, like the whistles and the impact and so I had to really learn to calm myself down a little bit coming from hockey to lacrosse. Um, but yeah, it was, it was awesome though. I had two very, very different sets of friends and, and friend groups from those sports, but they were all equally driven and, and similarly wired, even though they were different. So I, I really appreciated that aspect of it too. That's awesome. Um, all right. So you, you wind up your career at, at Bowdoin. Uh, how did you, and why did you become a coach? Uh, Cause I think you went straight out of, out, out of school in, into coaching. So maybe you Actually, can tell, tell us had, about that transition. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I had worked camps all the way through um, when I was in college. I worked the elite hockey camps and always loved being on the ice and giving back and working with other players and, and learning. I mean, most importantly, as a coach, you're constantly learning. So I knew I wanted to go back into coaching in some capacity. I was looking at maybe going back to prep schools and coaching for a while. And, you know, there just weren't a ton of jobs that lined up or, or were available when I was graduating. So um, I actually ended up moving uh back to Connecticut and uh, got a job at UConn, um, my first year of school with the sports information department. I had worked with ours a little bit in college. And so the, the neatest part about that year was I was able to actually be with the field hockey team when they won a national championship and then work with uh, their UConn women's basketball program, which, you know, as everybody knows, is a, an, an incredible Powerless. wagon. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just the, the standard of, you know, excellence and dynasty in women's sports, which is, which is awesome. Any sports really. So watching, uh, coach Gino Oriema and coach Chris Daly up, up close and personal and seeing seeing what they did was really when I was like wow I don't want to be on the staff side of this uh, more power to the sports information directors for sure but um, I'm like I want to be hands-on working with student athletes every day helping them develop and, and grow into great players good people um, you know and, and navigate all the challenges they face so that was when I was really um, itching to get back into the the active side of sports by coaching. And why did you pick hockey over lacrosse? It was always my first love. I, I, I happened to be, I think, better at lacrosse, but I loved hockey. Um, it's just, like I said, I had done it my entire life. Um, it was something that, you know, being on the ice just felt like a completely different world. There was never anything wrong when you step, step into a rink. Um, that was just the feeling. And, and I think there's so much, like I said, it's such a fast sport, um, you know, compared with lacrosse where uh, your own, you know, your own um, creativity and quickness and, and you know, decision-making and reading and thinking is, is really fun to work on developing with people because it's not just uh, set plays. You know, you might have face-offs or power plays or things like that. And obviously systematically you have to play together five on five in, in every area of the ice. But it was it was just such a fun sport. Like it was always my first love and I just always knew I wanted to, to spend time learning it and teaching it. Got it. So how, how did you get the job at, at Wesleyan? 
Um, well, as I said, it, you know, as happens in life, like you had a connection to it and coach McKenna had recruited me in high, in high school. I had gone on an overnight there. And, um, so they had a, a graduate program that you could take alongside the coaching, um, position. So I ended up doing that so I could get a, a master's degree as well. And, uh, was just really fortunate that she, you know, took a chance on me with little coaching experience and, uh, and took me under her wing there. Nice. And were you coaching just goalies at the time, or were you also doing kind of like what you do right now at RPI, where you're coaching uh, goalies and defense and, and other, you know, uh, team play? Yeah, I was a full-time assistant coach. Um, I focused on the goalies, obviously, and then uh, she was really fantastic in helping me uh, work with different areas. I started with our defensemen and, uh, and our PKs, and then by my last year there, I was working with some of our forwards and our power plays so that I could kind of learn all the aspects of it. Um, at the same time, I was working um, with Procrease and uh, IPH, which is a goalie company, and a player skills company, respectively, in Connecticut, which was amazing for me. I mean, I grew just as much working with them as I did with our team um, because I got to get a ton more ice time and focus on the, the details of, uh, you know, skills and things like that. So when I do talk about shooting nowadays, hopefully I know a thing or two, but... Um, but yeah, that was, that was awesome as well. Cause I got, I had to think really quickly on my feet and come up with skill drills and things like that. So, uh, I feel like I had a really like well-rounded education, um, as far as starting out in coaching when I was at Wesleyan. Gotcha. So wh why did you leave Wesleyan and, and come to RPI? Uh, I always knew I wanted to coach in division one and, and make it a full-time focus. Division three is, is fantastic. It's a great balance for student athletes, um, as they focus on their studies, but, um, you know, for, for a coaching position, I really wanted to be hands-on and have the resources around me where I could really focus on recruiting and coaching. Um, cause you wear a lot of different hats in division three, which, which makes you a better coach overall. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, however, it definitely stretches you a little bit thin. So that was always my goal. And then, um, coach Vines was, was amazing. I had a mutual friend, um, through, uh, through Brent Hill actually, who connected me with, with, uh, Brian and we, you know, hit it off right away, just hearing his passion and his vision for the program. It was so clear and, you know, I knew he was going to be successful here, and I still absolutely believe that. And that was, uh, yeah, there was no doubt in my mind that he was going to be an incredible coach to learn from. Um, just his experience in the NHL and at Denver, um, you know, he's, he knows the game inside and out, and he has a really clear set of philosophy and, and vision for, um, for what he believes in, you know, and a clear set of values for, for what he, you know, for how he treats people. So, yeah, no, it was, it was a no-brainer. Gotcha. So as, as I kind of, you mentioned earlier, the, you, you don't just focus on goalies. You, you work on uh, PK, defense, et cetera, et cetera. But I do want to ask a bunch of goalie questions since, as I mentioned earlier, you're my first uh, goalie guest on the podcast. So um, what type of goalies, you know, are you trying to develop these days? Is it the athletic goalie that's making, you know, flashy saves? Or is it kind of what I would call the, the boring and incredibly technically sound and positionally tight, like Carey Price kind of goalie? So which, what, what's, what's your kind of preference for uh, the goalie style these days? <laughs> God, I would love a Carey Price goalie. I think those goalies that make it look easy are the best goalies. You know, when you see the Hashik, I don't even know if young goalies now know who Dominic Hashik was. But oh, just the round, uh, when you the, see Dominic, the wheeling yeah. feet and everything like that, exactly. That's who, that's who I was thinking of when I am asking the question. So totally, yeah. When you think back to the Hashiks, it's a lot of times those saves. You, you have to have that element within you where you scramble. Uh, you know, and you make hard saves. Absolutely, that's just part of competing as a goalie. But uh, you know, I think focusing on the technical piece on uh, being in the right spots, controlling rebounds, and being really calm and poised, letting the play come to you. Uh, those goalies tend to really succeed. I mean, that was uh, Lavisa Salandre, who was an All-American for us here. That was her style. She had great size. She was just really technically savvy, always positionally sound. And uh, what we really worked on with her was her rebound control and her technical details, uh, playing the puck. And then, you know, it, interestingly enough, sometimes when you're you're on that side of the goalie spectrum where you're so poised and uh, you allow the puck to come to you and you use your size to your advantage. Uh, sometimes that doesn't benefit you in tight when you need to be able to react and scramble and push and, um, you know, do what you need to do to battle. So we, we would focus with that a little bit in each goalie world too on, you know, what she was doing around the crease to cover pucks and to be uh, a little bit more competitive. So yeah, that's, that's the ideal goaltender. I mean, she was a great example of it and she had a great career here. How do you feel about the the trend these days to go to much larger goalies? Like I'm I'm seeing six feet goalies in in college these days, six foot six foot one for for women, which is you know pretty statistically above average. Uh, what, what's your what's your perspective on recruiting larger goalies? 
Oh, well, you can't teach size. I've tried, but at five five, I definitely don't have that clout. Um, no, it, it's a great asset if you have size, but it's really what you're able to do with it. Um, you know, I think it, each goalie is on an individual basis. At times, there's a six foot goalie who can't get around their crease, isn't mobile enough, and they're not effective. So, um, you know, even I think we've seen some smaller goalies. Uh, you know, Frankel at Northeastern has been really impressive and exceptional. I mean, all three women's Olympic goalies for the U.S. in uh, 2018 were right around 5'5", five five, I think, um, or a little bit under. So uh, it is interesting to see that, yes, the trends are definitely getting taller, but a lot of the goalies who are succeeding and doing really well are not um, super tall. So I think it all comes down to the individual. And as long as you know what your strengths are as a goaltender and where you have uh, the best impact, you know, if you're small, you better be quick. You better be really good on your angles. Um, and you better be able to control pucks so you're not scrambling because you just don't have the size as much to um, to make up for it. But yeah, I mean, I think as long as you're really good at what you do and consistent, then, you know, you'll, you'll find a place in college hockey. Nice. Um, so as you know, uh, our, our target audience is mostly uh, minor uh, youth players and uh, both girls and boys. So what advice do you have for when these players should commit full-time to being a goalie if you really want to be a goalie? Yeah, I think usually by, you know, late middle school, high school age, um, like I said, I think I was about 11 or 12 by the time I was a full-time goaltender. Um, that's probably a good age, you know, by that point. I, I think, again, make sure you have a good skating base underneath you. If you're a little bit later to hockey, maybe focused on some of your skating and your skills, even just power skating and things like that will really benefit you uh, before kind of transitioning full-time. But yeah, right around that middle school age, I think going into early high school is, is a good time to, to hone like your, your fundamentals and things like that. But it's, it's a little different for everybody. Gotcha. And, and in youth hockey, I, I've heard, since I'm not a goalie parent, I've heard complaints from goalie parents around some really basic decision making around goalies, such as when should you tell a minor hockey goalie that they're playing in the next game? So what's, what's, your, what's, what's your recommendation on that? Because I know some coaches who don't tell them until just a few minutes before the game. I know some of them would tell them, you know, the, the day before. What, what's your recommendation? Oh, that's tough. I mean, goalies definitely want to prepare, but I would just be consistent with it. And uh, if, as long as they know what to expect, if you know that you're not going to know until right before a game, then at least you, you know what to expect. Um, I think the panic tends to set in when your expectations are not aligning with what's coming in reality. So... Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you're aware that you're going to be playing uh, one goalie on a Friday and the other goalie on a Saturday, then maybe just let them know you're planning on splitting the weekend or you want them to split the game. Um, just be upfront. Uh, I understand coaches, too, sometimes don't want to handcuff themselves. But I also think if you're, you know, a youth coach, depending on the level and where you're at, um, just give them equal playing time as well. You know, let them develop. Uh, you're not winning a Stanley Cup at age 12. So it's, uh, you know, or an Isabel Cup. So uh, just, just be fair, I think, for a lot of times. But at the same point, you know, when you get into some of those competitive levels, and yeah, I would say give them a give them a fair heads up. Uh, whatever you deem that to be fair, maybe ask them. Sometimes it's not always, it doesn't always make sense to tell a goalie the day ahead of time, and and sometimes you want to see what happens on that Friday game. But just communicate, I think, consistently, and and this way there won't be that many problems. How do you feel about splitting games? Uh, you know, one 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 goalie playing half the game, the second goalie playing the other half, or even differently, like changing every five, 10 minutes in the game so they can actually give feedback to, to each, each goalie in between their, when they play. What, what are your thoughts on that? I've heard, I've heard both recommendations from uh, folks who are associated with USA Hockey. Really? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. them up for shifts almost. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, th I think one of the things in goaltending that people um, take for granted is we, we want to feel like we're in control of things. So like in, um, you know, we're doing goalie role practices, for example, I think a lot of goalies want to feel like, well, I know the drill and it's not going to be any different from this. So I know what to expect each time. So it's good to mix it up every once in a while. Um, you know, I, again, I think, uh, I think switching is fine. You have to expect the unexpected. And if you're going to switch up halfway, there might be situations in college games. I know I've seen it plenty in the last three years where you throw a goalie in cold off the bench, whether it's from an injury or you pull a goalie. So you have to be ready for anything. Um, I didn't mind going in and splitting as um, as a goalie in youth in youth sports. So I don't really see anything wrong with it. Uh, shifts are pretty interesting. It's definitely a, a different way to keep goaltenders engaged on the bench. I kind of I kind of like that uniqueness. Um, but yeah, again, I think as long as you're consistent with whatever you choose to do, it'll it'll be impactful. Nice, nice. All right. Well, let's actually transition to the work that you've done with uh, USA Hockey Nationals and re regional camps. Why don't you just tell us how you got involved in them, what you've done, um, and then we'll get, kind of get into the details for which our audience wants to hear about of like, okay, 
what, what, what should I expect? What should I do? But let's, let's just start with your background in it. Uh, sure. Yeah, I started um, in the USA Hockey intern program, actually, when I was at Wesleyan. So I was able to get exposed to national camp and work out there as an intern coach for two years and um, was just getting involved at the district level. So I worked uh, back in New England at the district camps where I was from started getting involved out in the uh, in the western part of the United States at uh, the multi-district camp out in Colorado. So it was awesome to be able to see some of the different regions and kind of bring some bring some hockey uh, knowledge out there and just get exposed to, you know, the different, um, like you said, the different levels of, of hockey across the country. And having only been in New England my whole life, it was really neat to see. Um, so it's been fantastic. I mean, it, it was it was great to Great to experience those different areas, and uh, and especially at the national camp, it just you know it's a it's a neat process to have that exposure to the highest level and, and the development piece, and that's really the biggest focus. So um, I'm one of these parents who doesn't really know what to expect. So what what should they expect at a multi district camp, and what should they expect at, at a national camp? Um, obviously, it depends on the age, but let's you know kind of start at the 15s and then maybe at the 18s, uh, kind of the, the two different levels. For sure, yeah, it's a it's a mix of uh, on ice development. You're going to get probably two to three uh, ice sessions a day, and usually that's a focus on um, a balance of skill development, competitive games, um, you know, some tactical and uh, and positional information. Um, and then there's going to be games, you know, that are mostly for fun as an evaluative piece um, to help you learn. Uh, you're going to play with other players, kind of they split it in two halves for the goalies and. Uh, and then off the ice, there's a real focus on, um, you know, really what does it take to, to reach the next level? Um, it, it's pretty neat. They treat those national camps. Um, I think a lot as they would the, the national team camps where they're, where they're using sports psychologists. Um, they bring in Olympic players for talks. Uh, they, they talk about, you know, nutrition, sleep, recovery, all the different things that, uh, that go into being a high-level athlete. You're shaping conditioning. A lot of players will get exposure to the weight room and, and conditioning uh, in a way that they might not at home. So it's, it's really cool. It's kind of a benchmark for, okay, if I want to be at the top, here's where I am right now, and here are the things I need to do to get there. And I think most players who leave those camps, they come away with, with that type of a, a roadmap for, um, you know, if I want to be serious and want to be try to get to that highest level, this is what I need to do. So like, like you mentioned, you, you've worked at the district level, the regional level, and the national level. So what does it take to get from, to, to, to move on from, district to regional to you, you, the national level? What is it you're looking for? Yeah, I, th I think that's what it is. They're looking for um, the players who have continued to develop their skill in those areas, you know, who are able to play their position well, um, you know, who compete really hard in games and take advantage of those who have great character. Um, I've been a part of those discussions at the regional and the national level, and that is a big, a big piece of it. I think some youth parents probably say, oh, well, they're just saying that. But no, it's, it's definitely something they take into account. Like they want players who want to be there and want to take advantage of all those resources and opportunities. And, and sometimes when it comes down to one player versus another, that's that's something they take into, into serious uh, effects. So how would you measure that's that? Definitely a piece of it. How would you measure um, like their, their interest or their, their passion for, <laughs> for, for wanting to become a national player? Well, I think you see it in, you know, how they treat practices. Like first and foremost, uh, I've seen players who've gone out there in, uh, whether it's a tryout or whether it's a, you know, a practice where they kind of go out there, they're not super engaged. Their effort is kind of half of what it could be. Um, you know, they're, they're maybe not as receptive to coaching or feedback. Uh, the way they treat their teammates is a big deal. Like all those things are taken into account, um, you know, because as we talked about, like a USA hockey player is, is expected to be all those things, um, you know, and, and that's why they do so much. We set out a lot of time at the regional and the national camp for uh, team development as far as culture, um, you know, and, and bonding and things like that, because it is important. It's, it's, a, it's a really fun camp as much as it is about development. Um, I was just joking, uh, one of my roommates when I was at national camp, the one year I made it, because sometimes it just takes, also you have to have, a, things have to align. You know, I only made it one year and uh, Laura Bellamy, who's uh, an associate head coach at Duluth, was, uh, was my goalie partner and uh, roommate at that camp. And, we're, we still keep in touch and chat and obviously you're in the coaching world. So it's awesome. Like they're lifelong friends that you make there, even if it's just for a week. So, um, so yeah, all that stuff is super important. Gotcha. And um, one of the things that I've seen in reading some of the publications about the national camp is testing, the off-ice testing. How important is kind of before you show up to, to one of these camps of being in great shape and, and ready for these tests compared to, you know, the on-ice stuff? I think it's important as an athlete, you know, especially in the summer, because that's a time where you just make the most gains. So 
it is important to put work into it. Um, you know, I don't think that's a, an end-all be-all for being at the camp, but certainly if you want to continue on to like the U18 team, um, put yourself in a good position to make that or continue on to the college level. Um, as I said, it's, it's really a roadmap for, for what's important, you know, for what you need to focus on. So it is important to put some effort into it, but I don't think it's anything to be scared of. If you've, you know, if you've followed conditioning, if you've stayed active during the summer and you've had kind of a plan, uh, you tend to see most athletes do, do pretty well on it. Gotcha. So last question on, on USA hockey related stuff, which is what, what advice would you, you give to players who are going to their first state or regional camp? Cause as you know, last year, everything got canceled due to COVID and this year, at least, um, I think they're, they're doing it for three years. The, uh, the 2004 fives and sixes, they're going to be having uh, regional camp. So what, what, what are your uh, thoughts on advice that you would give to either players or parents? Yeah, uh, just no need to be nervous. Um, go in with an open mind, uh, be ready to learn, be excited about it, and uh, don't focus on the end result. You know, I think it's the same advice I would give any of our players going into games and things like that. The more you worry about the results, the, the, less, um, the less of an experience you'll have. So just enjoy it. You'll get an opportunity to meet a lot of really great coaches, um, a lot of other players from different um, districts or different areas of your state that you might not know. And uh, just be receptive to learning, give it your best, you know, do your best, and then the rest will uh, fall as it may. Great, excellent, good advice. So let's let's now transition now to to your your time at RPI. So for folks who don't know, um, the school's coming up on their 200th anniversary. Uh, they're starting in 1824, so it's 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 been around for a long time in, in Troy, New York. You have the third oldest rink uh, in Houston Fieldhouse, which is actually quite beautiful for folks who haven't seen it. And um, and if folks have not seen your jerseys, the cherry and white jerseys, they are spectacular. And where I'm from, they're called sweaters, but uh, they they they're they're really beautiful to just even just watching you guys play in the arena is pretty pretty awesome. Maybe you can just talk about, you know, the, the start of the program since it's been around since the, the mid-90s um, and tell us about the coaching staff, your philosophies and and uh, kind of player development. Sure, yeah. The, the program has a really proud tradition. I mean, hockey has been at RPI for over 100 years, definitely on the men's side. It, like you said, it's the third oldest college rink in the country and um, they've won a couple national championships. We were around as a club team for a long time, um, our women's program, and won a club championship in, in 1994. Um, in the 95-96 season, they went Division Three. Uh, Coach Bill Cahill started them up, and we actually have a Memorial uh, Christmas Cup three-on-three tournament with our team every year, and in his honor, which is which is awesome. You know, we're always looking back to the people who founded us, uh, you know, and started us up. Um, in 05 and 06, uh, Coach John Burke took the team to the Division One levels. They started out independent and then joined the ECAC the next year. So. Um, we're still relatively young, you know, in terms of a, the Division One program. Um, so we're excited to keep keep pushing it. You know, they've they've had a rich tradition. We've had some really great players come through here. Um, I mentioned La Vista. You know, we've had some some really really good ones. Whitney Naslin in the past. Uh, Smelker played professionally. We've had a handful of players who've gone on to the NWHL, um, you know, and played in those types of All Star leagues. Alexa Grishow. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a small history so far, but, you know, we're, we're a proud one and we're excited to keep pushing it. Our, our staff is, our staff is awesome. Coach Brian Vines, our head coach, uh, has a ton of experience from being on the men's side of the college game, as well as the NHL. He was a video coach with the Avalanche and, uh, was able to work with some, with, um, you know, some pretty amazing coaches and players out there and learn from the best. So, you know, and then Coach uh, Mark Cavosi was an alum of our RPI men's program and was an unbelievable player here before turning pro, was a Hobie Baker finalist, and, uh, was drafted by Minnesota. So, it, you know, when we run our program, it's really almost like a pro program um, in terms of the resources that we get, the video work, the skills sessions, um, you know, our expectations are are high. And, you know, we, we think we know exactly what it takes to, to keep building towards being a championship program. And that's our goal. So... Uh, as we recruit, as we look to develop, that's, you know, that hasn't changed since day one. We, we want to be in the top of the ECAC and, you know, we're, we're dead set on it. How do you divide your responsibilities between the, the three primary coaches on just the day-to-day -day management of the team and on the recruiting side? Yeah, that's a good question. We, we have really great natural balance, obviously. Um, I was a goaltender, Mark was a forward, and uh, Brian was a defenseman. So we kind of have the whole the whole spectrum covered, which is neat because anytime we kind of put our heads together on anything, we're, we're coming at it from three different angles and with, um, you know, some some neat problem solving. So um, so we kind of divide it up similarly. Uh, Mark and I will both work with the defenseman, and uh, he really focuses on the forward end of things. Uh, Brian is obviously seeing it from 
20,000 feet and running it from up top and, and making the full decisions. Um, you know, and then I work with our, our penalty kill. Mark, Mark works primarily with our power play. Um, you know, and then Mark and I are doing the, the bulk of the recruiting on the road, um, you know, with, with, with me coordinating it, but he's a huge part of the, the effort and we're all on board for that. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's neat. I mean, we have great personalities. I think I could be wrong uh, about <laughs> myself, but uh, we, yeah, we, we balance it out really well. And, you know, I think we're all equally invested and there's really, there's no egos. Like I said, even though they've, they've both been at the pro level and played the game at the highest levels and worked with some, some amazing coaches and athletes, um, you know, I think just very down to earth and really focused on our players and getting the most out of them and helping them, you know, achieve what they want to achieve on the ice and then pushing them to, to do really well in their, in the classroom. What's it like uh, during a game behind the bench? What is what's your style during the game, and and uh, what, what's what's Brian's style, especially as the head coach? Uh, you know, is he uh, you know yelling at the refs, or is he nice and calm and just say, hey, all the work's been done before we we stepped on the ice? No, he's very calm. Um, I think that was definitely something I was really impressed with. He's he's very calm. If anybody loses it at the ref, it's me, and uh, you know I've really really reined that in over the years too. I think that's the benefit of being uh, coming here after three years of coaching and not uh, in my first year. But no, I think, you know, we're, we're not too focused on the things that aren't within our control. Um, you know, the only time we really address the refs is when we think there's there's a health and safety issue that's been overlooked. Um, but we're just focusing on on the next, you know, it's, it's like we tell our players, like, I can't get wrapped up in what's happening on the ice because I got to figure out the next person going out or, um, you know, talk with our players and things like that. So really just about being calm, cool, and collected and, and let the players play. I mean, that's what we, we got to trust in our preparation and in our systematic play and, um, you know, and just watch for when we need to make tweaks or, or adjustments. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty calm. Uh, there's definitely some pacing. I'm, I'm big into, I always have a pen behind the ear apparently. So I get a lot of uh, flack for that, but, uh, and I have a really angry face, but besides that, it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty calm and cool. And we're just trying to help our players get the information they need and, and be prepared to go out. Yeah, and, and one of the things that uh, you mentioned is you're not just responsible for the goalies, you're also responsible for the defense and I believe the, the penalty kill. Um, you know, how do you teach, um, you know, rules that you've never played before? And I kind of know the answer to this because you, you did some work uh, last spring with USA Hockey talking about how to score, which is kind of unusual for, for a goalie to, to teach players how to score. But um, for folks who, who are interested, they can go look up on YouTube the USA Hockey video that you did with, uh, with USA Hockey, basically teaching players, here's what goalies see, so therefore here's what uh, you, you should know about it. But maybe elaborate more on, on working with, with the skaters as opposed to just the goalies. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you always you always fall back on your experience as a player when you're coaching, and, and as a goalie, you get a really unique perspective. So as a goaltender, I really tell them, like, you're the third defenseman back here, whether that's for breakouts, for uh, penalty kills, for um, special teams, you're you're important. Um, so that communication and having watched it from that perspective is is so important. You know, when you're the one on the receiving end of a backdoor tap and on a penalty kill, um, you know, that covering that lane becomes that much more important. So you're still communicating the same information to a defenseman as if you, you know, played that position. But I've had to really uh, learn and study a lot of the different habits um, that it takes to be successful as a player. And then one of the things that helped me too is I, once I left college hockey, uh, not unlike probably every other goalie I know, I, I never went back into the net. <laughs> so I, uh, I made sure that I, I did. I played, um, like I said, I did skill sessions and I played out in like men's league and stuff to get a better appreciation for, for that. So if I could coach myself and try to talk through that stuff, I could, I could talk through with our players and know what it's like to be in a similar experience. Um, but yeah, a lot of studying. I, I think I like to joke that I came, came to RPI with a, with a bachelor's in hockey and I, I'm going to feel like I have a PhD by the time I leave just from being around Mark and Brian and, and what they've been able to teach me and how I've been able to watch, um, you know, NHL or top Olympic video, break that stuff down and, and really know the lingo and try to talk systematically and, and understand like, where is their weak point? Where is their strength? You know, what are the habits that are important in order for the system to be effective? Um, so it's really just come from thinking about it as, you know, as a, as a class, like as attacking it as an education and, uh, and learning that side of it. Got it. Great. So uh, let's get to last season. Um, for folks who haven't checked this out, your record 2019-2020 uh, wasn't the best season for the team. Unfortunately, um, you didn't uh, get any wins on, on 
on the on the board. Um, was it because you know it seemed like you had a lack of offense? I believe you averaged less than one goal four per game, and you also had a pretty young team. Maybe you could just talk about you know uh, your season and kind of what you learned from it and how you're moving forward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's not something we we hide from. You know, I think it's something that fires us up every day for sure. I know the team is uh, is using that during COVID right now to stay uh, to stay hungry because they don't want that to happen ever again, and neither do we. But um, you know, like you said, we were a super young team. Um, there's there's a bunch of things that went on just behind the scenes, things that you know you never know about when you're on the outside looking in. Um, just players who had some some tough stuff going on at home. We had somebody who's whose father passed away during the season, you know, we had injuries. It was, uh, there was a lot of things, you know, and I don't say those as excuses. I just say those as it was part of it. Um, we were super young and we knew that because of that, uh, there was going to be some, some growth and some learning curves. And then, you know, when injuries come on top of that, we had a lot of young players out there and in positions that uh, maybe they weren't exactly ready for if it was, uh, you know, if it was a program with some older players. So, it was what it was. I think it, even though uh, the record looked as it did, I mean, I, I was so proud, and I know our staff was too, at A, um, you know, how strong the culture was that year, that our players never quit. Um, they were incredibly tight. I think things were um, as positive as could be expected uh, in the locker room and in team settings, uh, given that. I know we definitely focus on that as coaches and weren't, um, you know, we're not down on things. We're, we're focusing on the, next, on the next weekend, on the next practice, on getting better. Um, that was our pro focus every weekend. I think we were really realistic with, um, you know, with expectations and things like that. And, you know, you saw it, I think, in the season, even though there, there wasn't necessarily a win, there were some puck luck opportunities that just didn't go our way that either, you know, it would have changed like 10 games. I think we were within a goal of, I think, seven or eight games. So Yeah, there were many um, close games. Yeah. Almost all of them were close games in the second half of the year. Yeah. For sure. You know, and for a young team, it's like that's going to pay dividends for us down the road because we'll, we'll have had players who have been through – a lot of adversity and they handled it like absolute veterans, um, you know, and learned a lot and were in key situations. So I think like that last weekend when we played at Cornell, we, we played hard. I mean, and that was the thing, our effort never changed all year. Um, we played a frozen four team to, or what would have been a frozen four yeah. team, I would assume this year um, to, to a really close game. So uh, yeah, I mean, it was a record disappointing. Sure. But as anybody knows, there's a lot more that goes on. And if you, if anybody watched every game we played that season, I think they would have a much better understanding of, um, of how it really was. Yeah. So, I mean, you play an incredibly tough conference. ECAC is really tough. And what I did see was, you know, against the top teams like Clarkson, Cornell and Princeton, they were all close games. They were within two max, two or three goal difference, if not one goal game. So it was, it was very clear you were, you were competing even in, in, in the losses. Um, related to watching your games, um, you guys have an incredible service with RPI TV where basically every single one of your home games is, is live streamed on YouTube and you can go back and watch several years, which was actually what I did last spring. I watched a whole bunch of your games, uh, mostly because I was not only just watching you, I was also watching you know who you were playing against. And so it's actually pretty awesome. What I did notice is that at the uh, Houston Fieldhouse, it's an old arena and you're probably one of the last arenas that have the penalty boxes on uh, or the team benches on opposite sides from each other and the penalty box is right next to your bench so I'm wondering in the time that you've been at RPI has that with the position of the penalty box ever been to an advantage where you've been able to kind of either score a goal or prevent a goal because uh, the player coming out of the box is so close to your bench uh I think it's definitely opened some uh quick opportunities off of a off of a power play it's definitely nice not to, have to make that skate across the ice to get back but I can't think of any specific times, but um, it is nice. I mean, our players are right there. So if we need to communicate with them, we can just chat with them right through the back and, uh, hey, you're out or you're back in. So, you know, it's uh, it's definitely helpful. Yeah, I know. I'm surprised they haven't made you change it because I grew up in Montreal and the, the benches were in a similar fashion originally, but back sometime in the 90s, they forced them to switch it. I'm surprised <laughs> that uh, the NCAA hasn't forced you guys to uh, move, move the benches, but uh, that's awesome for you guys. Um, great. Now let's let's move on to okay. Last year's season's done. Obviously, ended a little bit uh, earlier than you expected, um, and unfortunately, this year your your season's been suspended. So I'm just uh, wondering how COVID and the cancellation of your season has impacted your recruiting for next year, and and what are what's going on with your players this year? Yeah, I mean, our, obviously it was disappointing, but I also don't envy the the people at the top um, who are making those decisions. It, it's so hard right now, and we're not the only program in that boat. Um, obviously, the Ivy Leagues and Union um, are in the same uh, are in the same situation, so it's hard. They're they're trying to weigh 
people's health and safety against our passions and our livelihoods. And, and I totally understand that um, as much as it, as it hurts, it, you know, it, it is what it is. So we're just trying to focus on, um, you know, preparing as best we can. Our, our players are in, you know, we told them like, do, do what's best for you. And we're fully supportive of that. So we have, we have some players who have elected to stay, stay home, stay remote for the semester and train because that's what's best for them. We have some who are on campus. So um, either way, just working to support them in, in the ways that they need. And, uh, and we're, you know, it's fun. We're getting as creative as we can. It's not fun, but we're, we're pushing ourselves a little bit to, uh, to really get them, you know, different resources to continue challenging them to develop in different ways. Um, you know, if we can't do our normal development with team video and things like that, how can we use the NHL footage now? How can we bring in guest speakers? Um, you know, I have to give a big thank you to Brianna Decker for talking to our team last weekend, which was, which was awesome. Just really great for them to hear. And somebody who's in a similar boat, you know, in terms of COVID uh, delaying and, and impacting her season and training. So um, nice for them to hear somebody with the empathy to, to really understand that and, and who's also still pushing to, to train and everything. So um, just, yeah, really focusing on getting them what they need and, and continuing to develop them in our culture and build the relationships up and down our, our team. It's uh, not the best to do it over Zoom, but, you know, we're making the best of what we have for sure. Um, you know, and then recruiting, we're, same thing, it's similar philosophy, you know, there's, we're not, we're not believers in excuses, uh, but we're definitely going to work within the, the parameters um, to, to get players as much information as they can about our school, our program, uh, you know, connecting them with our players. That was an awesome, uh, awesome job by the NCAA to lift that so that they can communicate with current players. And um, so, you know, I think that's been, that's been good. We've still been able to commit players through this process, even though we haven't been able to bring people to campus. So we're just focused on, you know, doing the best that we can so we can keep, uh, keep developing. And, um, your seniors, what, what are the, what's the plan for them? Um, are they going to come back next year for, for a real season, your season season, or are they planning to, to graduate and forego their, their season, their senior season of eligibility? Yeah, I think we're going to see they're, they're still making those decisions and evaluating. Um, so I think it'll be different by, by each person. Um, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I think we haven't really circled back to a lot of those conversations yet. Okay. And for, for parents and players out there who are going to be graduating in the next couple of years, what's, what's your perspective on kind of what the impact will be on them for your recruiting needs uh, if in, in general, or what do you think it'll be kind of at the ACAC level, like the impact will be on recruiting for the 2022s and 2023s? Yeah, no, it'll be interesting. I, I think, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see 2023 simply because the recruiting was was pushed uh, young enough before the rule change that I think a lot of 2022s um, were committed. And so those classes are kind of being filled out. But, um, you know, I think for parents, it, it's like there's no need to panic right now. Um, things will sort themselves out. And uh, in the four years that I've been in college hockey or at the Division One level and the seven years I've been in college hockey, uh, things change all the time at the last minute, regardless of, you know, this pandemic, like, uh, there will be transfers. There will be people who decommit. I mean, that happens every year, regardless of, yeah. um, you know, the circumstances. So there's always going to be opportunities. Um, so there's no need to really panic. Uh, just continue to get to know programs, to reach out to coaches, um, to get as much video as you can if you're playing. Um, if not, you know, just do the best you can with what you have. And there's ways to definitely continue to get to know uh, school and try to, you know, narrow your list and start to see what you want to do. Um, so that when things open up again and we're kind of back to normal, you'll you'll be in a good spot. Gotcha. And for folks who are uh, interested in, in RPI, um, you guys are called the engineers for a reason. I'm assuming because the the P is polytechnic for uh, in the in RPI. So if you go to RPI, do you have to become an engineer? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it's uh, it's a good question. It's definitely one we get a lot. Um, it's a proud tradition of engineering, that's for sure. But um, really, I was amazed. So, you know, in college and then at Wesley, and I was really exposed to the liberal arts. And that was, you know, where I got my degrees and, and what I had experienced. So uh, it was kind of a continuation, it felt like, of a high school education, you know, where you go to your history courses and, your, you know, your, your economics maybe. But um, it's been amazing seeing the, the STEM side of, of colleges here and, and at a top, you know, almost a top 50 university where you can uh, really get applicable life knowledge and a degree that's going to absolutely change your life. And especially now with, you know, what's going on, I think we're seeing how, how STEM fields are really growing and are the future of, um, you know, for technology and science and research. That's, that's the future of, of jobs and business. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been awesome to see. And, and a lot of our kids are, you know, whether they're on the business side um, of, of RPI, which prepares them for that as well, or the science of the engineering side of it. 
um, you know, it's, it's really awesome to see how they are so well prepared going into the world and, and are able to get awesome jobs and, and just continue, um, you know, continue developing and becoming incredible professionals that are doing some amazing things, uh, you know, in our, in our world. So um, related to that, one of your most famous alums is Adam Oates, who uh, I believe is in the Hall of Fame on, on the men's side of things. And a couple of years ago uh, on the men's side, um, he, he, was, he, he gave some comments around the academic standards of RPI are really high, which uh, was impacting the men's program. I was wondering how your academic standards impact the, the women's program, because I'm assuming that you got to be a pretty good student uh, before you show up at RPI. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's definitely an expectation. Um, I've been really impressed. Our players absolutely um, knocked it out of the park, especially last semester with really tough circumstances with all with remote school and things like that. So it's always our primary focus, um, you know, especially on the women's side, like you're, you're here to get a good degree. That's that's definitely your priority. Um, hockey is right about here, uh, hair's length <laughs> underneath it, maybe. But um, no, it's it's awesome. I think our, our girls really rise to the occasion. And that's their focus as well. They're in incredible majors. I mean, we've got an aeronautical engineer on the team. Um, we've got, an, and that's just a, a handful of them who are in the sciences or in the engineering. Uh, even on the business side, they're getting challenged as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's absolutely, it's great. Cause I think again, when, you know, women's recruits, I think you tend to see the players who uh, are really serious about what they do in the classroom and, and going to a really good school are also players who are really serious about, you know, putting in the commitment on the ice and, and being, uh, being dedicated to to their hockey career. So um, those two people with those priorities, they, they tend to do really well. Nice. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you're the lead uh, of the coaches on the recruiting side of things. So just from a kind of an ECAC perspective, um, you know, where, where do coaches like you recruit? Um, what are you looking for? Um, and and kind of describe the process of, of evaluating players who, who are, you know, currently playing girls hockey. Yeah, I think like any coach, uh, you know, you're always looking for the best fit for, for your program, for your, your values, your philosophy, um, for your style of play, and you'll go anywhere where that might be available. Um, I think if you, as a player, if you look on rosters, you'll see kind of where there's some connections um, where with certain areas, uh, regions, or programs where they tend to have, um, you know, some, some players who tend to uh, trend from. But uh, yeah, any, anywhere where, you know, people who are excited about, um, coming to RPI and, and being a division one athlete and are serious about those things, you know, that's, that's the focus as I think it is for any, any ECAC school. Are you going to U14 tournaments, U16 tournaments, U19, like which, <clears throat> which level of play are you looking? Yeah, I think uh, it depends on each program, but uh, you know, I think I like to be fully prepared as much as possible. Um, so a lot of programs, I think you'll see at all those tournaments, because as I said, the, the landscape changes all the time. Um, you know, you might have transfers, you might have, Injuries, decommits, um, you know, I think you're constantly trying to be prepared for any possible scenario. Um, you might need a senior in the spring, um, you know, and, and then you're also preparing for that next, uh, the 2023 class who we can contact in June. So um, I would imagine you're going to see us uh, at all different events um, as we're trying to kind of keep tabs on the future and then track development. You know, it's fun to see where a kid who's at the top of her game at the 14s goes by the time she hits 16s and it's a different level, you know, and a different challenge. And um, was it just because she had the size that she could dominate players? Did she learn to play with other players, um, you know, and, and be a bit of a distributor as well? Or is she just trying to go coast to coast? Um, like, how is her game growing and developing each year? How is she growing and developing? So uh, there's a lot of benefit to watching young players as they go all the way through. What style of play are you looking for for, for RPI, generally speaking? Like, what, what's, what's your uh, unique brand or personality uh, for your team that kind of would well align with players that are, that are considering RPI? Yeah, um, well, I can't get into too many specifics about that. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you our team motto for the last few years has always been tough together. Um, that's a big philosophy of ours. I don't think that's a secret. Um, so I think if you put it as a hashtag on social media, it's not a secret, right? Um, <laughs> but so you look but, tough uh, you know, together. I, is, uh, okay, got it. Teamwork and competitiveness. Together. All right, got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a good good interpretation. <laughs> All right, no, it's, wasn't that hard? Um, so what what advice would you have for parents or players who are going through these COVID times, both on the recruiting process and the stress of going through a recruiting process and on the development side? Like what should they be focusing on if, you know, they're they're moving up from U14 to U16 or moving from U16 to U19? What advice would you give on both sides, on the development side and the uh, recruiting side? 
Yeah. Well, for the recruiting side, I would say, again, just, just continue to do your homework, come up with your lists, um, think about, you know, most importantly, what type of school do you want to be at um, and a program you'd like to be a part of, um, you know, and, and contact coaches. There's also no rush to get to the college level. I've, I've said this for years, I think. If, and it's a family by family um, decision for sure. But if financially, if, if it makes sense and it's doable um, to take an extra year, to take a gap year, I think that's super valuable. I kind of always wish I had repeated a little bit. Um, so, you know, it's something worth looking into. It's not for everybody. I completely understand that, but that is a way to open up a little bit more in terms of recruiting opportunities. If you feel as though, um, that, that year has kind of, um, started to, to close down a little bit in terms of opportunity. It also just gives you another year to develop, but the guy side, they're, they're playing juniors for a few years before they're mm-hmm. going to college and just physically you're more mature, mentally you're more mature. Um, as a hockey player, you get another year to mature and really focus on your skill development. And then on the women's side for for the majority of players, your college career doesn't extend much longer uh, or your career doesn't extend much longer after college. So it's kind of neat to have an extra year to your career uh, before going to school. So I've always been a, a believer that if it's a, if it's a good option for you, it's definitely worth looking into if it's doable. Um, you know, and then from a development perspective, if you don't have access to ice right now or things are shut down, um, you can always work on your stick handling, your hands, uh, your conditioning, your strength, you can do body weight exercises. Um, you know, you can continue to develop your mental game and your toughness. There's a lot of really great resources out there for, um, for bouncing back, for, you know, your philosophy in terms of uh, like giving your best every day. There's, you know, we, we've found some really cool stuff uh, that we pass on to our team where um, just hearing from top athletes and, and what they're doing right now, too. There's just a lot of cool ways to learn and develop. Um, you know, you can watch the NHL. That's, that's a big thing as well. Or the, the PWHPA, which is coming up at the end of the month, uh, the NWHL, which it was a bummer they had to, yeah. to cancel, but that was awesome that they got that going and we're, we're streaming it. Like, there's so many really cool ways to stay connected with the game if you can't get on the ice right now. Yeah. And if you can, it's a great opportunity to work on, you know, on your skill development. Awesome. Great advice. A couple, couple last questions. Um, you were a highly successful Division Three player, um, and I'm wondering for folks who are kind of just on the cusp of potentially playing Division One versus Division Three, what, what advice would you give them? Yeah, it's uh, you know having been on both levels, it's it's pretty neat to have that perspective. Um, Division Three, I think the commitment is just as high in terms of players who are serious about hockey and serious about their education. It's a shorter season. Um, you don't have as much time to play hockey. So you have to really be devoted, passionate, um, really excited about development and the details to be at the Division One level and to thrive. Um, so if, if you're ready for that, if you're ready for hockey to really be um, year-round commitment, full-time, um, you know, at, at that Division One level with more games, then, then you know, absolutely go for it. Uh, but think about what you want your role to be. Um, I was able to play two sports at Division three level. Coach Mori was amazing. Was able to play two sports at the Division one level. It's definitely possible, but um, think about what you want it, what you want your experience to be like, and and what you're serious about. Um, you know, and and I think that's a big a big piece of it. But um, yeah, the Division one level is is awesome. It's about a it's about a lot of hard work, and I think those players who are super passionate about their development, taking advantage of extra time, um, you know, they're they're they do really well here. So. It's, uh, it's just a, a question of balance and, and what you really want to focus on and get out of your experience. I think both are, are fantastic. And, yeah. um, you know, there's times where it's like evaluate your, your situation. If there's a potential you could be a top Division three player, um, you know, and that's what you really want to do, then, then go for it, you know. Yeah, no, excellent advice. So um, just kind of wrapping things up, uh, do you, does RPI have any camps coming up this summer for uh, folks who are interested in RPI? You know, how can they, how can they kind of get – get more involved with either reaching out by filling out a form and expressing interest or coming to one of your summer camps if you have one this year or are you attending some uh, showcases? Where, where can folks start kind of raising their hands and expressing interest in RPI? Uh, yeah, we, we do not host a camp here. Um, something we're definitely working on uh, putting into play in the, in the next couple of years. But um, I would say absolutely reach out if you're interested. Um, you can send us any one of us an email. You can fill out a recruiting questionnaire. I would say do both of those if you're interested. Um, and then keep tabs. I mean, usually when we when we go out and work, uh, when we work uh, camps or different showcases or things like that, they'll they'll put us up on the rosters and, and all that. So I would keep keep tabs. Uh, we're still trying to sort out here what travel is going to look like in the next few months. Um, I know the NCA is is kind of throwing things up. It was supposed to be April fifteenth and then expiring after that, but we'll see if that gets extended. And and we're kind of playing it by year with all that stuff. But 
I mean, we're, we're ready. I know for sure we want to get back on the road and see our players, see these players as soon as possible. So, um, but until then, we'll, we'll do the best we can. And how can folks find you, reach out to you or follow you on social media? What's the, what's the best way to uh, connect with you? Yeah, probably if you go to the RPA uh, Athletics website and go to Women's Hockey, I think they have uh, my email, my, my office number, and, uh, and my, my Twitter account, which I've been embracing the last few years. So, um, yeah, any of those, those forms are the best way to communicate. Awesome. Tara, I just really want to thank you so much for coming on the Champs App podcast. This was great. I mean, especially uh, I'll make sure we, we, we bang the drum on the goalies part of this. And uh, for folks who want to also know about the, the USA Hockey Nationals and, and obviously RPI. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I love your background. It's a great yeah. picture of the field house. Thank you. Well, <laughs> folks should check it out. Go go to YouTube and watch some games on on uh, from RPI TV. All right. Thanks, Tara. Thanks, Ray. I really want to thank Tara for coming on the podcast today. It was great to hear her perspective about the RPI women's hockey program and their recruiting process. In addition, learning more about the USA hockey girls camps and finally her advice for goalies and what it takes to be successful as a goalie. And remember, if you got something out of today's podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you'd like, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review so we can help share this important hockey information with folks just like you.